disinformation, information ecology, an ideology, destroying disinformation campaigns as a part of social justice. The Fram episode. Starting in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. The Fram episode. The Fram episode. The Fram episode. This is not a quick fix. This is going to take 30 years, and we're never going to solve it. We've got 30 years, I think, to get to a point where it's manageable. And that's because we need to teach people how to basically navigate an information space that is really, really polluted. So it's the equivalent of getting everybody to wear SPS 15. It doesn't change the fact that the sun is going to cause damage. I'm never going to clean up Facebook. But if I have more people who know how to navigate their Facebook feeds, then that's where we need to get to. Well, welcome back. That was an interview with Dr. Wardle of the Information Futures Lab uh, regarding Brown School of Public Health. So welcome back to that Fram episode, episode number five, where this is going to be a content-rich, heavy uh, episode about destroying damaging disinformation campaigns. And I am going to go through a lot of definitions to start, and I will make sure I uh, speak slowly since this is an audio situation. I'm used to uh, teaching this information using visuals, PowerPoint presentations to college students. To start with this episode also, there's going to be some cussing going on. I normally don't cuss on my podcasts. I save that for, you know, my personal life at home with my friends. But in this situation, I mean, uh, there are going to be a few cuss words. So please uh, fast forward if you're not interested in hearing anything comical, uh, just to give you a heads up on this episode. So in the last few years, there's a number, a group of uh, U.S. lawmakers, uh, our lovely U.S. Congress, who have been questioning CEOs of Facebook, Twitter, Google, as well as other platforms uh, and other experts as well on the field of disinformation and the concerns about the effects of social media on society, especially children. And recent data has shown that children and young adults have been spending more time online and using more social media platforms, be, mainly because of the uh, COVID pandemic situation. So it set off a sudden uh, focus uh, on the use of social media platforms by the by youth, and so the concern is has grown exponentially because of this, and. In regards to disinformation, when we look at what type of solutions that have been uh, used in the last few years since 2015, which uh, in the U.S. has been a main focus because of the political environment, um, let me add, Europe before that has been dealing with this a lot longer than the U.S. has in regards to disinformation and mis misinformation in various different realms, not only politics, but uh, medicine uh, and technology and other um, aspects of society. And so I'm going to start defining a lot of terms. I'm going to take my time defining them. 
just make sure, take it all in. And the focus of today's episode is to stop throwing strategies at, at the problem, but start developing a plan, a, a social plan that is all-encompassing, overarching uh, in regards to getting a lot more members of society involved for, at all ages. Research has shown that people of all ages can easily be manipulated to uh, believe disinformation and misinformation. So this isn't uh, relegated to one age group. So when we start talking about disinformation and misinformation, let me quote uh, a particular person. Uh, Stephanie Pappas published, an, uh, there was an article she wrote in APA.org, Fighting Fake News in the Classroom. And she quotes uh, Dr. Weinberg from Stanford University, uh, defining disinformation and misinformation. Misinformation is incorrect information spread innocently. So the person who is spreading the information doesn't realize that where they got that information from, uh, another person had an agenda or an intent. That that person obviously believes it to be uh, it or sharing it believes it to be true. When they're spreading misinformation, say, for example, misinformation about the use of flu uh, vaccinations for the COVID-19, uh, a lot of misinformation that people were spreading, not realizing that someone else who developed had an intention for that uh, incorrect information. Now, this obviously goes right into disinformation. It is a deliberate false information. There is intent. So when you're in a court of law and you're trying to prove intent with disinformation, you are proving intent that someone has an agenda. They are intentionally pushing this, uh, a group typically because misinformation and disinformation exists within a group. Uh, and this is where we're going to start talking about, uh, I'm going to define ideology and discourse because when you are uh, as a group pushing and distributing misinformation or disinformation, depending on where you're at, if it's a group pushing misinformation, obviously there is a large entity above them who is who developed the disinformation. So yes, misinformation comes from disinformation. When we look at this type of uh, social action, we're looking at ideologies. So when we're talking about misinformation and disinformation, those are social actions. Therefore, we need to discuss them in the realm of there being an ideology governing uh, their flow and them being a part of a discourse. So now I'm going to get into the definition of ideology and the definition of discourse. So in its basic understanding, when I'm teaching college students, ideology any ideology, and there's lots of ideologies. There's religious, uh, there are social, social uh, involves race, gender, uh, so sexual orientation, uh, and, so, and et cetera. Uh, there's also political ideologies when you're talking about conservatism, socialism, liberalism, fascism. Those are all political ideologies. And so when you're talking about an ideology to define it, it is a system of beliefs, ideas, and ideals. So it is a system because there are processes, many processes going on at the same time and processes going on in conjunction with each other that form this ideology. 
Now, the only way you're going to know that an ideology is in play or working is through discourse. So discourses are the tangible evidence that an ideology exists and that it's in play. Discourses can be visuals. Discourses can be text, writing, uh, speech. Discourse can be physical action, which are social actions, because an ideology does not exist if it's just one person believing one idea and nobody else in the world believes it. That's not an ideology. If someone comes up with an idea and nobody else uh, believes it, that's just an idea. But when that person starts getting a group of people together to believe that belief and that idea, that's the formation of an ideology. And when that group of people start pushing behaviors to support that idea belief, that's the discourse, that's the tangible evidence of that ideology existing. And so that's in its simplest form of defining this. And where misinformation and disinformation come in is that is part of the discourse. So that's identifying an ideology, the misinformation and disinformation. Uh, and then the situation that this episode is going to talk about is Let's look at this from a different perspective because it's not working. There are a lot of researchers out there. There are a lot of experts right now who are saying it's not working. We, the U.S. has come into this situation too late and we need to really step up our game in regards to damaging and destroying disinformation campaigns. And that's what this episode, I hope, helps in presenting a framework as well as a perspective on how to look at disinformation campaigns. Now I'm going to get into the definition of the actual perspective, looking at disinformation campaigns from the perspective of information ecology. So information ecology involves looking at ecosystems. And so when you're looking at information ecology, uh, you're looking at uh, an emerging, it is, an, it is a field, it's basically information ecology is a field of study, okay? And then what you're going to be, what I believe people should be doing is looking at disinformation and, and misinformation within an information ecosystem within the, and use this uh, information ecology field as a grounding perspective. So this field generally is concerned with modeling information processes in human systems. It's typically used in computer science and business management. So it's mapping a network of information flow and information production. And when you're looking at an ecosystem, information ecosystem, you're looking at how a network of interconnected systems, or you're looking at an interrelationships of entities in a particular unit of space. This ecosystem, and when we talk about this from a biological perspective, we look at animals and how if you, uh, if certain bugs become extinct or animals are no longer within an e a particular ecosystem to maintain and its balance. If you start seeing too many mosquitoes, uh, there's not enough of certain uh, bugs that eat mosquitoes, for example. And so when we're talking about ecosystems and misinformation and disinformation uh, and seeing how they exist within an information ecosystem. And right now, when people are talking about how the fact that in the U.S. we are so polluted with disinformation, we're talking about an imbalance in the eco in the information ecosystem. And I hope with this episode to try to establish more of a balance where 
disinformation and misinformation are always going to exist through it. It's existed throughout history, but there needs to be a balance in an ecosystem in general. And right now we're at an imbalance. And this is part of the goal of this episode is to, to help along to get towards a, a more balanced ecosystem, information ecosystem. And with that definition, I'm going to give you a few more definitions here. So my idea is if you look at misinformation and disinformation in an information ecosystem, okay, you can organize, you can categorize patterns going on. And so misinformation and disinformation uh, show patterns as a discourse. All discourses have patterns. Uh, and so in regards to these patterns, you can organize them and categorize them with a certain framework. But one in particular I thought would be of use would be Terry Eagleton's framework, concept of an ideology, and in his uh, 2000, 1991 original edition, then 2007 edition is which I have of his ideology and introduction, Terry Eagleton uh, breaks down an ideology. And I these elements of an ideology include the fact that Number one, an ideology is unifying. Ideology has a rationalizing process. It has a legitim legitimating process. It has a universalizing process. It has a naturalizing process, and it's action-oriented. And so I'm going to define each of these. And I am going to be offering examples uh, throughout. I believe that using Eagleton's breakdown of an ideology is a framework that could be used in conjunction with the information ecology perspective uh, to not only identify mis misinformation and disinformation campaigns, but also to cause damage and potentially destroy them. And so this is, again, the goal of the episode. So Terry Eagleton's concept of ideology talks about processes. And so earlier when I mentioned information ecosystems have processes. This is an opportunity to uh, use this concept of ideology as a framework. And Terry Eagleton defines unifying and process of striving to be homogenous or not, but not often. Uh, it's a very complex situation of always becoming, trying to homogenize, striving to homogenize. The uh, next process uh, Terry talks about uh, action-oriented. Action-oriented directly points to discourse. So the tangible, what, what is uh, tangible? These, it has to exist and be translated into a practice state, have a tangible discourse with social action, words, images, etc. This is what, how we know an ideology is in play. Terry Eagleton's other process, rationalizing. Well, a social group is expressing social interests and rationalizing these social interests. The individual or group attempts to present an explanation that is either logically consistent or ethically acceptable uh, for attitudes, ideas, feelings, etc. So whose true uh, motives are not perceived. Rationalizing is a very important process that I'm going to go into further later. And the next process that Terry Eagle talks about is legitimizing. This is allied with a rationalizing process, a process by which a ruling power or group comes to secure from its members, uh, social members, and at least tacit consent to its authority. Uh, and often the use of material means for eliciting consent of members. 
Another, the other process involved in an, in an ideology is universalizing. This is eternalizing uh, information. This is allied with processes of le legitimizing. The legitimizing process is allied with the universalizing process. This process uh, is whereby specific values and interests uh, specific to a certain place and time are projected as the values and interests of all of humanity. So it's projecting these is key. So it's a matter of a class of people persuading others that this class interests are the same facts that are at one with another group and framing these interests in a way that make it plausible. The next process that is included in Eagleton's concept of ideology is naturalizing. So this is when groups render their beliefs natural and self-evident to identify beliefs as common sense so no one can imagine how the beliefs might be different. Common sense in itself is an ideology. It's exclusive to cultures. So every culture has their own common sense ideology. And this is how you distinguish one way, one way of many ways to distinguish between ideologies based on the culture. And so these processes, unifying, being action-oriented, rationalizing, legitimizing, universalizing, naturalizing, these uh, work, these processes work simultaneously uh, and in conjunction uh, with one another. They uh, support each other in various ways. And this is consistent throughout all ideologies. Therefore, if you're looking at misinformation and disinformation as part of the discourse of an ideology, you're, you're seeing these processes in play to rationalize the disinformation and misinformation, to make it universal, uh, make it natural as it's, it's common sense. So you will see this uh, happening uh, when you're in this information ecosystem and you see misinformation or disinformation at play. And so I think that looking at using this framework in conjunction with the, the information ecology perspective has not, is not being done to the extent that it should be. Uh, and this, I feel that it's going to be pivotal uh, situation in regards to damaging and destroying disinformation campaigns. Also need to take in one more piece of information. Now I'm talking about all this all these elements of disinformation, misinformation, information ecosystems, ideology, discourse, uh, the uh, processes of Eagleton's that we're talking about, they have to work, everything has to be segmented into different levels. And so we have to look at all this from at the macro, the meso, and the micro levels, which is key because this is where you're going to see how the universalizing process works at the macro level most of the time, whereas the rationalizing process works at the meso and micro level uh, most of the time. Not saying that they don't work at any of these levels, but only a relegated one. No, they're more prominent and more dominant uh, at the macro level versus the micro level. And this is where it's key at looking at if you're trying to identify where disinformation campaigns are starting from and where they're headed to. So the whole concern is to connect these processes of an ideology with the 
elements of an information ec ecosystem at the macro, meso, and micro level. Now, I did not give you the elements of an information ecosystem, and I'm going to do this right now. Yes, this is a lot of information, I understand. So you probably won't want to play back uh, this part. But if we look at the elements of an information ecosystem, and these are actually uh, segmented uh, at the macro, meso, and micro level. So at the macro level, and we're talking about macro level, we're talking about the overarching, the large scale level. Uh, for example, Fox TV would be considered uh, a mechanism working at the macro level. Uh, if we're looking at a meso level, we're looking at uh, mid-level, mid-range. We're looking at organizations and churches and uh, social groups uh, that are uh, that take the information from Fox TV, say for example, and they start spreading it. So that's the meso level. We have to look at the micro level. We're looking at small scale. We're looking at local. We're looking at community groups, neighborhoods, uh, small groups within the community. That's at the micro level. And so when we're talking about elements of an information ecosystem, the elements at the macro level uh, and focus on information, the information landscape. That's the actual institutional infrastructure level and also looking at the dynamics of access. access. So that's the environment of the information flow, the political, the cultural, the economic, the technological, the religious, the social uh, dynamics of access. Uh, and the information landscape and the dynamics of access work together at the macro level. At the meso level, mid-range, we're looking at uh, content distribution and consumption. So you're looking at information needs across populations. You're looking at production and movement of the information in each community. And so this, you're looking at providers of the information and the information flow itself. You're also looking at information use. So the information, how it's being processed, used, and applied. So we're talking about applied. Now we're talking about uh, uh, more more emphasis on the discourse uh, than in the upper levels. Not to say that discourse does not exist at the macro level or meso level. It does. It does. It it you see it in a different way. So when you see the Fox TV uh, talking about information in its actual disinformation, that is a behavior that is a discourse. When you're talking about uh, someone from a uh, organization in a community taking that information and then presenting it, say, at a church event or at a religious event, that is a discourse. Somebody's talking, speaking. When you're talking at the micro level and you just left that church event and you and five other uh, members uh, go to your neighborhood and you live in the same neighborhood and you're talking and you're now spreading and discussing that disinformation. That's at the micro level. That's discourse because you're talking, you're doing certain behaviors. So let's be aware of that. So elements of information ecosystem at the macro level already mentioned, information landscape and the dynamics of access. At the meso level, you're talk looking at content distribution and consumption. That's information needs, production and movement of the information and information use. At the micro level now, you're looking at the human and social insights. So you're looking at the influ influencers in organizations and communities and institutions. You're also looking at social trust. 
That includes the trust networks in, the, in flow and the use of the information. So that is key, trust, social trusts. And then you're looking at information impact. It's relationship between info, the prior knowledge and behavior change. So you're looking at influencers, social trust, and information impact at the micro level. And that's where you get into somebody in the neighborhood who's left the church event, who, who, who brought that disinformation, and they've talked amongst their other neighbors that they were at that event. And then they know now go out uh, and they're a sociable person. And then now they're talking to people who don't go to that church. They go to another church and they tell them this disinformation. Influencer, they have a social trust. They have a trust with those people now who don't, uh, they go to another church. So now those people from another church take that information and take that to people paid, uh, at their church. And then you're looking at the information impact. So overall, when different disinformation campaigns are being uh, in, uh, developed, uh, the whole goal is to look and see the impact at the micro level and even the meso level. And that's uh, what people who develop these disinformation campaigns, campaigns are looking at. And you can see the impact based on now the so much frequent use of social media platforms. You can see the impact based on people's comments and replies on Twitter and Facebook and all this other stuff. So that's one way to gather data on on the impact of the disinformation campaign. And there's other ways as well. So I know I've overwhelmed you with a lot of information here uh, and looking at basically summarizing and saying, hey, you know what? We are not looking at uh, disinformation campaigns in an appropriate way anymore. When we started out, we were trying to figure this out and we were piecemealing, putting out strategies to try to damage disinformation campaigns. Well, it's not working anymore. We have to look at it from another perspective, an information ecology perspective, and look at misinformation and disinformation within information ecosystems. And we also need to, you need a framework for breaking down uh, that ecosystem, that information ecosystem, and Terry Eagleton's concept of ideology, and it's the processes I've, list, I've given you as one way, a framework to do it, and I think it's a more effective way, efficient way of breaking down what is going on in an information ecosystem governed by a particular ideology and the discourse, which includes misinformation or disinformation or both. So we're going to start now getting into a lot more examples because I know I've probably confused you all, uh, which happens and I apologize, but I'm going to go in through a lot of examples here to explain each and every one. And then we're going to go into strategies for fighting disinformation campaigns. And so at this point, I think you probably should have a break, a comical break with cuss words. So uh, after this, I will dive in more to uh, information about tackling all of this. Now in a desperate attempt to fill 24 hours of programming, here's some bullshit that happened somewhere today. We've got some footage here of the bullshit which began just after three o'clock this afternoon when residents in this neighborhood were shocked to see this fairly common thing happening. An attractive witness described the event in breathless terms. I went to my window and I was like, whoa, there's some bullshit happening. That happened right over there. I'm an old man, so you can trust what I say. Authorities in special uniforms rushed to the scene to stand around while our cameras filmed them. 
Our reporter Keith Collins joins us now live from the scene of the bullshit through the use of expensive technology. Good to be with you again, Keith. We have a colorful graphic here that shows instances of bullshit like this are on the rise. Is that right? Yes, although why is unclear. Some say it's because of one fucking reason. Others say it's because of some other fucking reason. I talked to this random expert on the subject who told me this thing you're about to hear him say right after he points at a piece of paper. I spent my entire life attending the nation's most prestigious schools talk about bullshit like this. I'm really just happy to be on TV. Now let's see if we can drag this out a little longer by showing emails written by some of our viewers. I once saw some stuff kind of like the shit you're talking about happen. I have nothing more to add. Another person says, I am angry that things like this happen. I get mad about every bullshit thing I see. So uh, obviously a lot of opinions there to make this story seem somewhat meaningful. Oh, absolutely, Glenn. This bullshit has some broader implications. Here's a list of tips on how to avoid bullshit happening to you. And here's some footage of Congress. Yes, I see that. Well, thank you, Keith. Uh, let us know if there are any updates on this bullshit story from there. There's no way there will be. Very good. We'll check back with you in an hour anyway. I'm just some fucking luck. When we return, we'll look at live footage of a car chase taken from a helicopter. And free associate about what's going on. <laughs> Well, I hope you enjoyed that excerpt from The Onion from 2010. Quite comical, but I thought it was very relevant in regards to just giving you a lot of examples uh, about the processes in an ideology, particularly what Terry Eagleton's talking about, and also gives you an idea about an information ecosystem, particularly uh, where the news is in, uh, involved and incorporates information. But I have not addressed, uh, and I will address this right now, how is this relevant to social justice? And being that my podcast focuses on social justice, uh, this is misinformation and disinformation. They're both very uh, relevant and they're issues. They're social justice issues because you know what? Disinformation on itself, and this is my main focus uh, of this episode, disinformation, it dehumanizes minority groups. If you look at how uh, the sheer amount of disinformation russia is pushing out about ukraine uh after in, the, in regards to this war and the terrible things russia is doing uh, that they are dehumanizing ukrainians that point blank okay disinformation pushes discriminatory uh practices and efforts uh disinformation most of it requires you to uh discriminate against another social group one way or another Disinformation causes false health emergencies uh, that we've seen globally. Disinformation using to cause uh, problems and also being used as a weapon, weaponizing information to scare and cause fear regards to health emergencies uh, and, and pandemics. Disinformation causes hate speech. Disinformation causes physical violence. It produces online radicalization. So when we talk about extremist groups trying to get new members and going after young people, uh, which is the most recent uh, uh, evidence, they're using disinformation to radicalize younger people to become members of their extremist group. Disinformation causes harassment against a group of people. Disinformation disrupts educational systems by misinforming and, dis and disinformation used to get parents to believe that they need to remove certain types of curriculum, like critical race theory, uh, from college curriculum does not exist in at the elementary uh, and barely exists at the high school level in the United States, uh, if at all. 
I've not seen it, but I've I've heard teachers trying to. But the majority of critical race theory exists at the college level. Okay, this this is what dis, disinformation causes uh, disruption in educational systems. Also, it removes knowledge. Disinformation campaigns remove knowledge and stories through book bans and uh, uh, through book burnings, which was an early in history what used to be done uh, if you ever saw uh, the movie uh, Footloose and the scene where they're burning books. Disinformation causes this, and this becomes a social justice issue. And that's why we need to damage and destroy disinformation campaigns. And uh, particularly in the U.S., this is where we need to step it up a notch and get our asses moving. So I said that I would continue to offer some examples. And so before I jump into some examples, let me quickly go through the one of the articles that I used to gain information for this episode. It's a Lawfare 2023 article by Alicia Wanless, and it's called There is No Getting Ahead of Disinformation Without Moving Past It. Now, at the beginning of the article, uh, this person talks about the inability to define disinformation or disinformation campaigns. I disagree. Uh, I've already done it in this episode. It can easily be defined. It's not as confusing as people make it. But what I do appreciate, appreciate about this article is its focus on information uh, ecology as a perspective. So the author of this article says, and I will quote, uh, read from the article, the point is that the information environment is complex and many factors can lead to disturbances. This is why more than just the sum of the information environments, many parts must be studied more intensely. Researchers and policymakers need to understand the socioeconomic and psychological conditions that encourage people to believe conspiracies, for example, as well as the role of influencers, inclu including those who control the means of mass communication and traditional media, among other factors. And this is where we get into me talking again about the use of information ecology as, a, a, I think, a perfect perspective, looking at information ecosystems and misinformation and disinformation campaigns within a particular inf information ecosystem and using Eagleton's uh, framework, uh, the processes uh, involved in an ideology as a way to break down uh, what's going on within that information ecosystem regarding disinformation campaigns. And once you're able to do that, then you can get at damaging and destroying disinformation campaigns is what I believe. And this author uh, of this Lawfare 2023 article goes on further to say it, and I will quote again, to make sense of this complex system, multiple layers within the information environment must be considered simultaneously. It's not enough to look at narrow examples of disinformation or to use blunt instruments such as content moderation to stop it. Observers and policymakers have to understand how different types of actors within the information environment are going to manipulate a given situation to their financial or political benefit. It is also key is understanding what types of conditions cause what outcomes among the public as a result of both interventions and responses to those interventions. So this goes far beyond piecemeal approaches to studying the effectiveness of just one single intervention, like banning specific users uh, from one platform. It goes more about a multi-level approach to uh, damaging disinformation campaigns. And this is one of the reasons I appreciate this uh, Lawfare 
2023 article. Now getting into examples, which I said I would offer because uh, you need to understand at the macro, the mezzo and the micro level examples with all the definitions that I have given you. So at the macro level, I'm going to give you two sides. So first side is, for example, at the macro level, you have Fox television and the emphasized uh, action is to watch Fox TV. So Fox TV works as an information landscape. Conservative groups uh, work in conjunction in this landscape as part of the dynamic of access, which I remember I said is at the macro level in an information ecosystem. Now at this macro level, you have a unifying force. Fox TV works as a unifying process, uh, a force in a unifying process. Now I'm getting into Eagleton's elements, uh, processes and an ide ideology. When we go to the mezzo level, we go from Fox television, we go to Christian organizations and churches. They uh, can readily and do map information flow. So that's where information needs come from. They identify what information is needed with their parishioners and their members of their group. And they clearly have known channels of authority. So they are a part of the process of production and movement of the information. And this is at the mezzo level. They also present information at social gatherings and materials as well. So that's information use. And they are also part of, the authorities are also part of setting up protocols to catch any deviation from the information presented. So this is where you now, if you look at Eagleton's uh, processes, rationalizing. The rationalizing process is what helps to set up protocols to catch deviations from information presented. Now, when you go to the micro level of an e information ecosystem, in this example, you're looking at social media stars and community leaders as influencers. And they're presenting inf information because they are a trusted source. They are presenting information in a trusted um, venue, in trusted outlets. And you're also getting this information from Fox Television by personal contacts in the community. So you have church leaders, advisors, uh, and other uh, um, group uh, influencers. And then when you get into the influ influencers at, this mi at the micro level, they're on guard to catch any deviation uh, from the information presented by presenting updated videos and updated uh, knowledge and as well as updated talks. This is where you also get in, again, maintaining the rationalizing process. Uh, and at the same time, you have all this action-oriented uh, process, processes going on at different levels of the macro, meso, and micro level. But where it's key is to see how it impacts at the micro level, which is most frequently what happens. Now let's turn us on the other side, give you another example of an information ecosystem. We'll say at the macro level, you have MSNBC. They work just as similar, similarly as uh, Foxwood. MSNBC is an information landscape. The actions that they promote is to watch MSNBC. So that's part of the information landscape. Then you have the liberal groups that end up, and Democratic Party groups uh, that work at this macro level, and they're part of the dynamic of access to the information. And again, as I said, at this level, you have the unifying process from Eagleton's, uh, one of Eagleton's processes in regards to ideology. And this is where you have a focus on information that uh, makes sure that every group at the macro level has access in general to all of the information that MSNBC is providing. At the meso level, you have 
local and regional groups, democratic groups, liberal groups, organizations, uh, you know, local uh, community groups as well. They, again, are mapping the information flow, the information needs, which is an uh, element of the, at the meso level in regards to information ecosystem. Again, they have known channels of authority. It could be politicians. It could be uh, CEOs, uh, very uh, well-known business people. And they are part of the production and the movement of information. And they present info uh, at social gatherings and at business gatherings, at political gatherings, and materials, which is information use. And they, again, set up protocols to catch any deviance from the information presented. And this, as I said again, where the rationalizing process uh, takes a foothold. Uh, and then when you get into the micro level, because you want to actually eventually see the impact uh, uh, of what happens, the action-oriented uh, process at the micro level, this is where you look at the social media stars and the community leaders as influencers, uh, and they're presenting info um, in trusted outlets like LA Times, for example, or certain social media accounts. And then also by personal contacts in the community, business leaders, religious leaders, who are also pushing forward this information, the information MSNBC has. And then you have the influencers. Again, they're on guard to catch any deviance from this information by using updated videos and materials and talks uh, to update and maintain um, the, the rationalizing process. So this is an example of two different types of ecosystems. Obviously, they are in contrast to each other. But just to give you an idea of how your uh, misinformation and disinformation campaigns uh, work within each one of these uh, information ecosystems. Now, we also want to get at looking at, um, we're going to start getting into tools. It also offers uh, a lot of strategies in this article. Let me give you the information. Fighting fake news in the classroom. Misinformation and disinformation are enormous problems online. So this article by Stephanie Pappas, which was, which was published in 2022, uh, not only defines disinformation but and misinformation, but also gives you examples at the micro uh, and meso level about how to tackle and how to damage disinformation campaigns. And across the board, this article, as well as another article by Roberta Braga, uh, which was an opinion uh, contributor, the article, We Need to Formalize Counter Disinformation Education for Children and Teens. This was in 2021. And in this article, definitely offers, again, a focus, particular strategies to uh, combat uh, disinformation campaigns. And I will read from Braga's article, 2021. As kids and young adults dive deeper into the online space, their education should include lessons on understanding and countering disinformation and misinformation. For these lessons to be effective, teachers must be equipped to understand the complexities of counter-disinformation tactics they'll be teaching. In partnership with educators, teachers associations, and education non-governmental organizations, the funders of open source journalism and research training, along with third parties conducting such training sessions, they all should convene discussions to identify educators' gaps in knowledge, debate what sorts of training and tools educators could receive, and determine the lessons that should be passed on to students of different ages. Now, as you're starting to see the ongoing uh, theme here, I'm starting to have is that 
One way to tackle disinformation campaigns at uh, multi-levels, macro, meso, and micro, is to have direct uh, influence and, uh, and impact in educational systems. And I'm going to be talking about the U.S. educational system, and even in California, which I think would be more appropriate to actually developing and implementing these at a faster pace because of just how more advanced California's educational system is than than in other states. I really think that this is something, one of the main essential tools to use to damage and destroy disinformation campaigns. I'm going to play a video, I'm going to play audio from a video of, again, Dr. Wardle's interview, which I had uh, did a little excerpt earlier, earlier at the beginning of the uh, episode. And I, this, um, goes into more detail, Dr. Wardle goes into more detail about the actual information environment and ways to tackle. Uh, and then I'm going to further go into detail with strategies. So I'm very excited to have this opportunity to be at Brown, mostly because Brown is famous for being a university that takes multidisciplinarity seriously. There are lots of universities that say it, but don't really do it. There's a real opportunity to work with people who, for example, are thinking about democratic erosion in the political science department, scientists who are thinking about climate change, people who are thinking about hate speech and identity, all of these different elements that are concerned or have misinformation at the heart of the kind of work that they're doing. So I'm really excited about that. But the thing that we're going to build at Brown is, is focused on the future. What we do need is a center that's really focused on what works and not just what works in the U.S., but what works globally, what's scalable, how can we really think about interventions that make sense? And some of my frustrations are that the academy doesn't necessarily connect enough with practitioners, but similarly, practitioners are very good at throwing spaghetti at the wall, but don't understand why we need rigorous evaluation to figure out what works and what doesn't work. So the dream at Brown is to try and bring these two worlds together so that we can really do research that means that we give practitioners tools tactics, resources, workbooks, trainings, technology that makes their life easier, but all of these things have been tested and we know that they work. When I went to get my master's in public health, most of my courses were about things like epidemiology, biostatistics. So why is it important for school public health to have courses and work around misinformation? So I don't want to throw any shade I'm going to. But there is still a tweet out there from the WHO from January 2020 that says that COVID is not transmissible via aerosols. It's still out there as a tweet. But there's also tweets and Facebook posts by the CDC and others about masks that don't make any sense anymore. And I think one thing that we've learned, or I hope that we've learned during this pandemic, is the importance of communicating effectively. Uh, communicating in a way that there's an honest conversation about what's known and what's not known. There has been a disturbing downward trend in trust towards these very important large public health institutions. And I think if we don't learn from that, then all of the great work done by epidemiologists and statisticians and other people working in public health means zero if fundamentally people are not using that data to inform their decisions. Dean Jar, the reason when he came and found me, I was like, I'm going to be honest, I'm not a public health person. He was like, that's exactly why I wanted to come here, because we have to integrate this into our education. We have to integrate this into our research. It doesn't matter what we do at the School of Public Health if we don't take communication seriously. Those of us who live in 
the information ecosystem that we do, like our information ecosystem is top down, linear and hierarchical. You know, I'm going to listen to a press conference with Dr. Fauci. I'm probably going to read it in the New York Times and I'm going to go, mm, yes. But it's very passive. I'm being broadcast at and I consume it and I might share it with somebody, but it's not really interactive. The disinformation ecosystem, the conspiratorial ecosystem, is really participatory. People feel like they have agency, they're doing their own research, they're sharing it with their communities who say, thank you, let's add that to our database. I think we forget that. And that's critical to all of this, which is, as humans, many people want that connection that increasingly they don't have in their everyday lives. If your work at Brown is successful in the next 10, 20, 30 years, how will we be approaching information and responding to it differently? There will be less of it. It won't have disappeared. There will be less of this kind of content. Well, I found the interview with Dr. Wardle from the Brown's School of Public Health. It was a 2022 interview. Very insightful in regards to what needs to be tackled. Goals for the next 30 years, mind you on how to damage and destroy disinformation campaigns that are within information ecosystems. And the article I mentioned earlier from uh, Roberta Braga, uh, which was published in 2021 in The Hill, starts a discussion about how to uh, change educational systems in order to counteract disinformation and misinformation. So starting at, at young ages, not starting at adult ages of uh, monitoring content. So we have to look at the micro level changing, uh, uh, introducing strategies into educational systems in the United States, meso level, uh, rewriting and redeveloping educational systems uh, at the state level, and incorporating this at the federal level at some point in order to reach these huge goals uh, that Dr. Wardle has talked about. Now, in the Another article, the uh, Roberta Braga article, which was published in The Hill in uh, May 2021, just so you have the information if you want to look it up. There was also another article I mentioned, the Pappas article, which was published uh, in 2022. Again, it starts talking about the need to incorporate strategies into uh, at the micro level and meso level into educational systems. And in this article, uh, it definitely, let me quote from it, it says, this sort of instruction melds nicely with uh, the psycho psychology curricula from psychology 101 to research methods courses to specialized seminars on cognition and reasoning. It all comes back to what we know about cognitive biases. So you can connect it to psychology so easily. Uh, this is a, a quote which was uh, made by Susan, Dr. Susan Nolan, a psychology professor at Seton Hall University in this article. There are many ways to incorporate this type of countering uh, curricula at multiple levels, elementary, middle school, and high school, and college level. Uh, even at the college level, it says here, many students come into psychology courses with preconceived notions about the subject. Uh, Dr. Nolan says. So it makes it easy to work debunking into the curriculum from the get-go, debunking a type of strategy. And so uh, another strategy uh, that is included in this article, um, Pappas uh, 2022 article, talks about lateral reading. This is something that can be introduced at the elementary level. 
middle school level and high school level. So it is a promising method. Lateral reading, the process of leaving an original source and checking for background information about the source elsewhere. In a study, I'm quoting in, from the article, in a study of teaching lateral reading in college level civics courses, educational psychology, doctoral student Jessica Brodsky of the City University of New York and colleagues found that students initially rarely did this kind of fact checking, but that teaching the strategies as part of a curriculum increased students' lateral reading. And I'm going to play some, um, some video that defines lateral reading here soon, just so you have a good definition, because I really think across the board, this, this type of strategy, besides the debunking strategy, can be immediately implemented at the micro level. And so there's also uh, other strategies this article mentions, um, gamifying the learning. So there's online games, uh, for example, one called Bad News, which challenges players to become fake news tycoons by using outreach social media posts and emotionally driven headlines to gain influence. The game basically communicates the strategies that disinformation uh, developers use with a series of badge players you can earn as they build a fake news empire, including awards for impersonation, emotion, polarization, conspiracy, trolling, and discrediting opponents. So there's games out there that exist online that can help as the kids are playing it, help them understand what's going on. Another game called Go Viral. The game teaches the techniques used to spread false information, just like Bad News does, uh, the online game. Uh, and so there's, a, you just have to do a little bit of the research to find out what is out there that you can use right now. Also talk about, let me give you some examples of what types of strategies we can use at the macro, meso, and micro level in regards to uh, damaging and destroying disinformation campaigns. So if we're looking at fighting at every level, at the macro level, your majority of uh, fighting that we could do in the US uh, is damaging the legitimizing process. Remember Eagleton's uh, processes of an ideology? An example of a legitimizing process is when a government passes laws or a Congress passes laws uh, against organizations using disinformation. And there's some countries out there already that have some local laws and uh, federal level laws that pu punish people using disinformation, punish organizations and people using disinformation. So political actions to push for laws, that's, that's a legitimizing process. At the meso level, you're looking at state universities. You're looking at like what Brown University is doing, completing research on effective tools for fighting disinformation. Uh, you have... Uh, the Center for News Literacies, they have a rep repository of curriculum tools. Stanford History Education Groups has a civ civic online reasoning curriculum. So this stuff is out there published already. There's a, uh, a book called The Debunking Handbook in 20, uh, from 2020. These are ways to damage the unifying process and the rationalizing process at the meso level, uh, damaging disinformation campaigns and uh, destroying them at the micro level. You could have school districts implementing lessons from these repositories of curricula, lessons on teaching, lateral reading, teachers uh, using lesson plans and tools, you know, from the Stanford History Education Group's curriculum. And also the Center for News Literacy's repository uh, has uh, tools that can be implemented immediately. Psychology courses can teach these strategies to debunk disinformation and misinformation. The whole idea of debunking information in, in classrooms, in offices, in local events, social events, in newsletters, in the news, 
This can go on right now, as well as the lateral reading can be taught live on news. So MSNBC can do lateral reading uh, and demonstrate it uh, at the start of any type of news, uh, breaking news information that involves disinformation. This can quickly be done and already can be done. And this is where you're looking at damaging the rationalizing process. When I talked about Eagleton's processes uh, that are part of an ideology, you could damage a rationalizing process quickly this way by using debunking strategies and lateral reading uh, at the micro level and meso level. If you're not getting it already, the key here is damaging the rationalizing process of an ideology in an information ecosystem. And that is one place to start, okay? And how can you damage the rationalizing process? Well, there's one way you can do it. Fact-checking processes reaching from institution to a community. You can look at authorities uh, fighting disinformation. They can reestablish the information needs of a social group or community using mechanisms like news outlets uh, in the information flow process. Uh, how else you can damage, damage the rationalizing process? Well, you can, uh, school districts obviously can correctly implement the teaching of lateral reading and critical thinking and debunking strategies from elementary level through the high school level. Uh, the PTA can get involved in supporting uh, getting access to a curricula or supporting the curricula to bring it into the schools. You get the PTA involved. At uh, the university level, university programs can incorporate debunking strategies relevant to each industry. Each industry has their own form of misinformation and disinformation processes going on. You can implement these debunking strategy uh, in order to dampen down and the damage it does. Uh, again, fact-checking. You can have interception points initiated throughout inform information production and movement processes, which is at the meso level. Again, you're looking at how uh, the movement of information, whether it's through local groups, uh, religious groups, uh, political groups, community groups, and how they're pushing the information, you can require, and that organization can put fact-checking uh, strategies with, within their promotional efforts. And this, again, you develop and implement a vetting process. If there is the development and an implementation of a vetting process for, for influencers uh, that delegitimizes their influence. So Develop, having a vetting process for influencers, making sure uh, they uh, are adequate, uh, appropriate, well-guided influencers uh, that um, actually do not push disinformation, um, but there are protocols in place to catch misinformation as well as disinformation, and they are learning, they're part of that learning process and implementing it as well. And that delegitimizes those influencers, if you have a vetting process, uh, who uh, would be part of the problem. So these, this is just several ways of just alone damaging the, a rationalizing process within an information ecosystem. And I'm going to go down a, a list that I have of other tools that can be used that I got uh, researched online that I felt was is handy to have Tools for fighting disinformation and misinformation. So besides the games, like I told you, go viral and bad news, there's also another one called Factitious 2020 Pandemic Edition. This is challenges players to differentiate between real and fake news. There's also the news, and mind you, I suggest Googling all this information or Google any of these that if they uh, interest you. There's the News Literacy Project. It puts out a newsletter, a weekly newsletter, The Sift. 
and it offers interactive lessons um, at uh, get.checkology.org. So get.checkology.org, interactive lessons. Uh, there was a, uh, a newsletter, uh, a, glo a global newsletter called First Draft News. It's no longer in working, but they have archived their information. And in 2022, they, be, be, they relocated to Information Futures Lab at Brown University. And so they have uh, a website that offers a lot of tools. Um, there's Reuters has an identify and tackling manipulated media uh, information. The Center for News Literacy I told you about is at Stony Brook University School of Journalism. It has a repository of curriculum tools. Then there's that, again, book, the Debunking Handbook 2020. No, the Debunking Handbook is uh, hosted by George Mason University Center for Climate Change Communication, uh, but it's not specific to climate misinformation. There's also uh, another an, another book, a free ebook from APA. It's called Psychological Myths, Myth Truths, and Misconceptions, Curriculum-Based Strategies for Knowledge Change. Teachers can use this uh, to help them develop their own little pl uh, lesson plans. There's the Misinforma Misinformation Desk, a Psychology Today blog by Dr. Susan Nolan and Michael Kimball uh, that you can go and get some insight. The Civic Online Reasoning Curriculum I told you about from Stanford History Education Group. It includes lessons, assessments, and videos on how to evaluate online information. And to add from my alma mater, Arizona State, Dr. Hendrickson from the School of Molecular Sciences is teaching a course on spotting pseudoscience and navigating the info in scientific research. A perfect example of how to fact check. And again, I'm going to stress the use of debunking strategies and lateral reading. So let me uh, quickly jump in here and give you just a quick audio from a video on how to learn how to do lateral reading. This is perfect strategy for teaching children at elementary school level. We live in an era of information overabundance. This demands that we be more discerning. Instead of accepting information at face value, we should always ask this one important question. Who's behind the information? The Stanford History Education Group conducted a study with Stanford undergraduates, professors from four different universities, and professional fact checkers to determine the most effective methods for evaluating digital information. There were dramatic differences in how intelligent people looked at the web. Many smart undergrads and esteemed professors evaluated a site by reading vertically, staying on the site and reading it as if it were a printed document. They focused on the site's look, its aesthetics, graphics, and overall appearance. They were deceived by an official looking logo or the name of the organization. They attributed importance to the .org in the URL without realizing that .org is an open domain. Any individual or group can buy a .org domain without passing a character test or proving they're working for social betterment. They examined scholarly references and research reports without realizing that, unlike an academic journal, on the web, anything goes. Intelligent people equipped with critical thinking skills were often taken in by slick web pages. Professional fact-checkers approached the web differently. They understood that on the web, what you see is often not what you get. The web is treacherous territory, and you can't let your eyes deceive you. Landing on an unfamiliar site, they didn't waste precious time engaged in close reading. Instead, they opened new tabs in their browser and read laterally. 
Rather than spending time on a site like the Employment Policies Institute, they turned to the broader web. They clicked on a New York Times article about the Employment Policies Institute entitled, Fight Over Minimum Wage Illustrates Web of Industry Ties. They scanned the Wikipedia entry, which describes the Institute as a fiscally conservative think tank, particularly aimed towards reducing the minimum wage. Its staff worked for a public affairs firm owned by Richard Berman. A search for Richard Berman leads to a 60 Minutes report which labels Berman as Dr. Evil for his use of nonprofit front groups that advocate on behalf of his corporate clients. Only 40% of bright Stanford students were able to make the link to Berman. 100% of the fact checkers did, often in a fraction of the time. Lateral reading was the reason why. All research studies have shown that lateral reading can be taught. Students in classes that completed civic online reasoning lessons significantly increased their ability to accurately judge websites compared to a control group. Lateral reading stands in sharp contrast to many methods for teaching digital literacy. These methods focus on long checklists of questions and keep students' eyes on a single site before they've even established that the site is worth their time. Although the basic idea of lateral reading is simple, becoming skilled at it takes practice. Students need to see examples of lateral reading and practice it with a range of sources. They also need to know when they've found a reliable news source or one that's known for conspiracy theories. Lateral reading helps students to find better information online and to become informed and more thoughtful members of society. And with that, I do need to wrap up this session. Uh, the whole point of this episode, I repeat again, is to look at uh, disinformation campaigns and misinformation campaigns uh, as a part of information ecosystems. And these ecosystems can be organized and patterns uh, within them can be categorized at the macro, meso, and micro levels using Terry Eagleton's concept of an ideology and the processes within it which include the unifying process, the rationalizing process, legitimating process, universalizing process, naturalizing process, and action-oriented or processes, which again I say are discourses, uh, hint discourses. The ultimate goal is to damage and destroy disinform disinformation campaigns within information ecosystems. Finding weaknesses and chipping away at and eliminating uh, these campaigns. You could break them down uh, using uh, the perspective and framework that I've given you. And you could uh, segment its elements uh, in the framework definitely uh, to look at ways to developing more effective strategies. I've never stated that I'm an expert in this. I do not believe that anybody is an expert in disinformation campaigns. I believe that there are people who are experts in certain processes involved in disinformation campaigns. I believe there are people who are experts in identifying um, there are experts that uh, can uh, have figured out how to analyze and assess uh, eco information ecosystems and disinformation campaigns within them. There are people who have, look, have uh, figured out how to develop strategies based on the research uh, that has been done. Uh, but I do not think that anybody out there exists that knows everything from not only the development of a disinformation campaign, uh, analyzing it, what methods you should use in regards to data collection and data analysis, as well as uh, the maintenance of the disinformation campaign, as well as 
how to um, damage it and destroy it uh, and um, manage it as well. This, these are a multi-levels complex system going on here and it's going to take more than one person to sit down and come up uh, with answers to questions that each, for each of those uh, skills and abilities, expert level skills and abilities. I am but very knowledgeable in just a few of those, just like a few other people that you hear on news uh, outlets like MSNBC and ABC, CBS, who do talk about uh, certain elements. People who work for the NSA, CIA, or even FBI, who they become experts on identifying, but do they know how to analyze what data collection methods, data analysis methods would be best uh, in order to uh, not only identify, but how to find weaknesses within the campaign. So, and it goes on. But hopefully maybe one day uh, with all this uh, information that I've given on this uh, episode, that a small group of children in some school district somewhere has been lucky enough to uh, experience a newfound type of curriculum that counters disinformation and they go up and they get a PhD like I did and then they learn and become the experts that we need and lower the sheer amount of pollution that is going on in the information ecosystems we have. So this is a wrap on episode five and uh, this is also a wrap on season one. I uh, hope you have a wonderful summer. I will have season two, uh, get that ready in, in, uh, by the end of August, season two of That Fram episode. The Fram episode.